When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, think about your favorite team and where they play or played the stadium. How historic or iconic is it or was it? Welcome to the first of a three-part series exploring the most historic stadiums in NFL history. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. All right, finally it's time. I have a lot of papers. I don't even know if I'm going to get to all of this. But anyway, NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome into the show. This show is for you. I'm here for you. All right. It's me for you. And again, it's cool if you guys, you gals know this stuff already. But, you know, again, congratulations to you. I only have like three sugar cookies left in the back. Uh, I might eat them before I give them to you. But remember this. There's always someone else who does not know as much about NFL history. So my job is to do three things. That is enlighten, teach, and learn. That's the existence of this show. This is the Behind the Mic Podcast. I am your host, Michael Neal Jr. This show is presented by Belly Up Sports, Belly Up Media, and also the Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. That's what we're a part of. Please go to bellyupsports.com. Check out the merch, the stories, all the other shows, especially mine. And then you can find us on our home of Megaphone. All right. Megaphone. Also the favorites. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. So storylines for this past week, week 12, right? Some teams continue to dominate. Change is good. And some losses hurt more than others kick the music it is the week 12 rundown thanksgiving day games i hope you guys had a great thanksgiving by the way um i enjoyed it i slept to 9 30 i never do that i'm always up at like four and uh, i got up i wanted to cook breakfast i couldn't why because i was busy watching <laughs> the lions and i was watching the packers well you know here we go uh, Packers, Lions, that was on Fox. Love the old to John Madden with the patch on the jerseys for the teams during this Thanksgiving day. That that whole day was great. 
But Thursday game, Detroit Lions, they serve as an example of what turnovers can do or undo, right? Sometimes you can overcome them and sometimes you just can't. Unlike the comeback win against the Chicago Bears the week before, you know, <laughs> Detroit got the beats on Thanksgiving. Detroit Lions, they were one and six on fourth down. They're usually good. They just kept going for it, fake punts, nothing worked. They could not block Rashawn Gary, who had three sacks. Jordan Love continued to torch the Lions defense. And after five turnovers in the first five games, Detroit had six turnovers in the last two games. Three fumbles on last Thursday. The Packers applied constant pressure on Jared Goff defensively and including the scoop and score off of one of Jared Goff's three fumbles. Jordan Love and the offense, though, they stayed consistent and they actually scored points. I had to notice the improvement. Okay, let's see if it continues. And I think Matt LaFleur, uh, being as aggressive as his defense, he has to be encouraged by the play of his quarterback. And like I said, you know, he got the John Madden Player of the Game Award, kind of. Come on, Fox. You've got to have the turkey leg for Jordan Love. Packers 29, Lions 14. CBS game. Commanders and Cowboys. Look, I mean, what's there to talk about? <laughs> the Dallas Cowboys continue to dominate teams at home. Another beatdown that wasn't even close. Washington was not ready. That defense for the Cowboys, if you don't already know by now, it's real. Dak Prescott, he should be in the MVP excuse me, conversation. C.D. Lamb will be an all-pro, but history was made on Thanksgiving. Deron Bland, the first player in NFL history to have five pick sixes. Five. And all I just couldn't believe what I was watching. And John Madden, the players of the game, Prescott and Bland, they had turkey legs. Cowboys 45, Commanders 10. NBC, Sunday Night Football crew, they did the 49ers and the Seahawks. And just like the Washington Commanders offense, Geno Smith's elbow was not ready. A lot of short passes, he had an interception, and those six sacks by the 49ers on Smith did not help that arm at all. I, you know. but speaking of defense, Seattle was not ready for Christian McCaffrey. He had a big first half, rushed for two touchdowns. The 49ers built a 24-3 halftime lead, and McCaffrey had 114 yards on the ground. Brock Purdy steady through the air, and Debo, he stayed pretty busy. 79 yards receiving, and he rushed for a touchdown, and CMC got the turkey leg. 49ers 31, Seahawks 13. Amazon Black Friday football, Dolphins at the Jets. And that was the first time ever we had football, NFL football on Black Friday like that. And in New York, it's when it rains, it pours, don't it? And I've never seen a pick six off a of Hail Mary before. Not before uh, uh, the half. And it actually reminded me of the Iron Bowl kick six. Speaking of which, if you missed the Iron Bowl, that was a classic game. Auburn, yeah, you should cry. You should cry. Anyway, but instead of a, a field goal uh, attempt by like Nick Saban did with Alabama, Robert Salah decided to throw a Hail Mary instead of taking the knee before the half. Next thing you know, the Dolphins' Javon Holland, 99 yards the other way. Wow. You thought Tim Boyle, uh, who was quarterback in the Jets because they put my man on the bench. <laughs> they, they benched. Uh, Mr. Wilson, uh, but the Jets offense is still just terrible. You know, they finally scored a touchdown, the first in more than 40 possessions, I think 41 to be exact. And as for the Dolphins, the good, newlywed Tariq Hill's 10th touchdown of the season. He gives the ball to his new 
newlywed wife in the stands with the kissing, you know, the blowing the kisses to her with the helmet off. That was great. And the bad, Jalen Phillips, uh, defensive end for the Dolphins towards Achilles. I was on Instagram, and, and if you watch that, that I, I don't know if they've shown it like that before uh, since then. I'm sure they have. Social media is amazing. You saw it tear. Look at his right leg, the back of his right leg. You can see when he goes to take off on the pass rush, you see it literally snap and see his whole leg ripple. I've never seen anything like that. Anyway, Dolphins 34, Jets 13. Sunday, high noon, <laughs> Steelers, Bengals. All right, so last week, you see Matt Canada gets fired. Steelers running back coach, Eddie Faulkner ran the offense. Quarterback coach Mike Sullivan, he calls the plays. It actually worked. For the first time this season, 58 uh, 58 games, 58 quarters, I mean, of, of, of bad offensive football, they rolled up over 400 yards of total offense, 421. And they outgained Cincinnati, which, you know, 421 to 20, 222, that is. I know that's without Joe Burrow. I understand that. The quarterback does not play defense, though. Okay, Najee Harris averaged 6.6 yards per carry, had 99 yards in the touchdown. Pat Firemuth, he caught nine balls for a buck 20. Can he pick it through for a season high 278? No touchdowns, but he looked better. And Deontay Johnson, dude, come on, man. <laughs> you got. If you didn't see it, you know there was a, there, there was the uh, a fumble. And he just acted like he wasn't even there. He just didn't even come off the line, just kind of walked. Anyway, I'm not wasting no time on him. But with all the success of Pittsburgh offensively, he only scored one touchdown. Chris Boswell, he nailed three field goals. Cincinnati's defense was more bend but don't break. And they kept, uh, you know, backup Jake Browning and Cincinnati's offense in the game. And simply put, since he needs Joe Burrow. So it's just simple. But Steelers hold on. Steelers 16, Bengals 10, Panthers, Titans. When you've lost three in a row, a team coming into your house with one win on the season is pretty much just what you need. And that win got Frank Warwick fired. The third coach uh, in three years. Three years in a row, you've had a coach after one season, didn't even finish the season to be fired. And I'm not really surprised, but uh, Derrick Henry on the plus side, he goes for two touchdowns and has over 9,000 yards for his career. Will Levis managed the offense, you know, passing game a little bit, you know, no touchdown passes, but then two, the Titans as a team had eight penalties. Not good for the future. And against a team like the Panthers, second half, Tennessee could not move the ball. Their last five possessions went like this. Punt, 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 knee downs, uh, you know, kneel downs. At least they won the game. Titans 17, Panthers 10. Jaguars, Titan, uh, Texans, battle for first place. I'm going to learn that I should just start C.J. Stroud, but then too, I got C.J. Stroud on one squad and I have Jalen Hurts. So Hurts still kind of outscores Stroud for the most part. But on the other fantasy team, I have Patrick Mahomes. And I mean, I, I won my game. No, actually, I barely lost. I should have started C.J. Stroud in that one. Yeah, yeah, not going into that one yet either. But uh, look, the Chiefs, they can't catch, and the Texans can. Uh, that's what it is. But Stroud on Sunday against the Jaguars accounted for 304 yards through the air, three total touchdowns. That's 30 points that I badly needed. And Jacksonville set the pace and only gave up, you know, the lead just one time. And Trevor Lawrence, 
364 yards passing. The Texans only gave up one touchdown pass, and it was almost enough. You know, it, it really was. Uh, turned out to be enough because it came down to a Matt Amendola 58-yard field goal that bounced off the crossbar. The longest he had ever made, uh, according to the commentators, was 56 yards in high school. You know, he's never made a field goal over 50 yards in the league. Well, there it is. Jaguars holding on 24, Texans 21. Buccaneers Colts, not going to lie, missed the majority of this game. All I can say, at least the Buccaneers fought their way back into it. Uh, they didn't have to totally rely on Baker Mayfield's arm. Of course, he fumbled the ball away at the end, uh, and then that was the ball game. But Rashad White ran for 100 yards uh, on the nose. Mike Evans, he caught two scores. Gardner Minshew didn't throw a single touchdown, but he ran for one himself. And it was Jonathan Taylor's two scores on the ground himself that did the trick. Second came off a gutsy fourth and one pass play that went to tight end Mo Alley Cox. Great play fake by Gardner Minshew. Didn't throw a touchdown, but he did, did what he needed to do. And surprising, not surprisingly enough, even though the Buccaneers lost, they're still in the quote, in the hunt. They're in the hunt. As far as the playoffs are concerned, in the somebody's got to win it, NFC South, uh, with a four and seven record. Colts 27, Buccaneers 20. Saints, Falcons, battle for first place again. Uh, NFC South, uh, somebody's got to win that. Um, and it was the uh, safety, Atlanta safety, Jesse based the thirds, his two big defensive plays. He put on a nice show early and, and there in the middle. That was the difference in that Falcons win on Sunday. Two of the Saints quarterbacks were responsible for those big turnovers. First quarter, Derek Carr throws a pick six to Bates. 92 yards, 7-3 lead for the Falcons. Third quarter, Taysom Hill, he has a keeper. Bates perfectly punches the ball out, and you know that fumble was recovered by Atlanta, and they clung to a 14-12 lead. They were driving. Nine plays and 95 yards later, Desmond Ritter, 26-yard touchdown pass to B. John Robson. And speaking of Robson, he had 123 yards of total offense on Sunday. That's not a bad day for him, right? Two scores on top of that. Desmond Ritter still can't tur stop turning the ball over. He threw two picks, but he needs to tell Jesse Bates, thank you, right? And you know, it's just what it is. Um, got plenty of help from the rest of the team as well. But Derek Carr, yeah, 300 yards passing again, but two turnovers that the uh, Saints had cost them dearly. Not to mention they missed, uh, they're going to miss Chris Olave, who left the game with a concussion. Falcons 24, Saints 15, Patriots, uh, Giants, a long way away from those two Super Bowl matchups. No more Eli versus Tom. The Giants, as far as quarterbacks are concerned, lost their top two guys, Daniel Jones and Tyrod Taylor. Tommy DeVito, he's the rookie whose mom still makes his bed. He's looking for his second win of the season in a row. Well, the Patriots, they continue their carousel of quarterbacks. Mac Jones turns the ball over twice in the first half. He goes to the bench. Bailey Zappi, you're up. He throws an interception himself. Didn't really matter. Didn't matter. Belichick bled the clock, though. It was a tight game. Bled the clock. Final drive all the way down to six seconds. Yeah, we're going to go to overtime. Chad Ryland misses the 35-yard attempt. Yeah, that big. DeVito, he will get into his already-made bed a winner. Uh, he got into that bed a winner that night. So, Giants 10, Patriots 7. Rams, Cardinals. Keep this short. Cars went for the Ocho after their first touchdown. They were leading 8-0. Then the Rams responded, uh, you know, in the first quarter. 
Arizona was up by one point, eight to seven. Well, the Rams proceeded, proceeded to score <laughs> 30 more points, outscoring them 30 to six. Man, Kyron Williams, running back for the Rams, makes a difference. 143 yards, well, let's just say it. Over 200 yards, two touchdowns from him, period. Matt Stafford throws four touchdown passes. And we actually got to see Carson Wentz at the end of the game for the Rams. <laughs> Rams 37, Cardinals 14, Browns, Broncos. Defense can only get you so far. Offense has to score points, move the football, etc. right? Cleveland couldn't do that on Sunday. Not enough. DTR <laughs> did his best. Not sure if it would have mattered if he wasn't knocked out of the game, bleeding from the mouth. Not sure if uh, Amari Cooper being knocked out of the game because of ribs. Uh, don't know if it would have made the difference or not, but the Broncos not only moved the ball, but they actually scored points. Russell Wilson ran for a touchdown, threw for another, and maybe, just maybe it helps when Miles Garrett was a little hurt and he had that shoulder injury. But the Broncos, on their defensive side, they got four sacks and a safety, forced five fumbles, recovering three, and the Browns' defense, one of the best in the league, really didn't show up on Sunday. <laughs> got to do more, you know, even when Miles Garrett is not on the field. Broncos win their fifth straight game. Broncos 29, Browns 12. Chiefs, Raiders, when the Chiefs were down 14 to zip, I wasn't worried. As evidenced by the Chiefs going on, you know, on a 31 to three run the rest of the game. The Raiders, they looked like they were going uh, back on a run and tell us that all that adrenaline and those first two wins, you know, after firing Josh McDaniels was anything but, though. Jacoby Myers, touchdown catch, that was one thing. But Josh Jacobs, that 63-yard touchdown run was another. Backbreaker, but Kansas City, they stayed poised. Plenty of game left, y'all. We got Patrick Mahomes. He throws two touchdowns. Isaiah Pacheco runs like... You know, so, like his life depends on it. And uh, the Kansas City receivers actually caught the football. And Rasheed Rice had 100 yards, including a 39-yard touchdown catch and run. Needed that for fantasy, but it wasn't enough. <laughs> but uh, the great thing is that Kansas City actually scored in the second half, which is crazy. They had done so in the second half of their past four games. Chiefs 31, Raiders 17, Eagles Bills. If you missed it, you missed it. All right, high-scoring game that went into overtime. Missed opportunities and lessons on why you shouldn't let certain teams hang around too long, especially when you're playing in their house. Simply put, Buffalo should have won the game, period. They had leads, they led at halftime. After three quarters, they were up 24 to 14. And then Josh Allen throws a pick. Jalen Hurts responds with a touchdown pass. Eagles take the lead. Allen and the Bills, they retake the lead, 31 to 28 in the fourth quarter on a touchdown pass of his own to Gabe Davis. Jake Elliott turns around and kicks a game-tying 59-yard field goal to send it to overtime. And for some reason, the Bills had the ball first. Gabe Davis, I think he just ran the wrong route. He was wide open. Nobody was within 10 miles of him. And then they settled for a field goal. Philly got the ball back. They scored a touchdown. Buffalo, I know that one hurts. See what I did there? Eagles 37, Bills 34, Sunday night football, Ravens, Chargers. Ravens did most of their scoring in the first half. And then that Brandon Staley Swiss cheese defense tightened up in the second. They kept the game low scoring, just to be honest. And it's crazy how Staley's uh, defense has given up five quarterbacks season high in passing yards, right? But Lamar Jackson, he didn't have the biggest passing yard day, but they did what they needed to do. You know, so, but LA, they couldn't sustain a drive at all on Sunday. They couldn't run the football. Justin 
uh, Tucker misses a field goal what in the fourth quarter. They should have took advantage of that. It was only 13 to 10. They can't take advantage of anything. And then with LA not being able to run the ball, Justin Herbert being the leading rusher with 47 yards, where was Austin Eckler? Nowhere to be found. Milk cart. And the Ravens wide out. He, uh, Zay uh, Jones, no, uh, Zay Flowers, he puts the game away with his second touchdown of the game, 37-yard touchdown run, somewhat redeeming himself for that terrible touchdown celebration with the bouquet throwing thing. Yeah, Lamar said, don't do that no more. Ravens 20, Chargers 10, Monday Night Football, Bears, Vikings. Stop me if you've heard this before. Bears give up a lead Lake. Josh Dobbs throws four picks, should have been five. Minnesota was 0-6 uh, at one point on third down. Couldn't run the football. Bears only got three points off of turnovers at one point, but they held a 9-3 lead in the fourth quarter. Justin Fields fumbles. Dobbs throws a touchdown pass to take the lead 10-9 to TJ Hawkinson. Fields fumbles again, looks out because his defense forces a punt. Fields got some redemption, drives the Bears to a game-winning Cairo Santos field goal with 10 seconds left in the game. Chicago wins without scoring a touchdown. <laughs> That's crazy. Chicago 12, Vikings 10. Whew. Coming up next, the Minnesota Vikings, who just hosted those Bears at one of the newest stadiums built this century. U.S. Bank Stadium, very beautiful. But it wasn't always like that. The NFL has come a long way. It used to be parks and bleachers. So I got to a point where it's like, we're always talking about the NFL, right? And um, how both professional baseball, Major League Baseball and college football were on top. Uh, and I've referenced the movie Leatherheads on how it was the difference between pro football and college football. In Leatherheads, there was only a couple hundred people, maybe a thousand people watching their game, were really a couple hundred from the movie standpoint. And then the college football got thousands upon thousands of people watching the game, right? Uh, had a talk with a friend the other day who asked me, how old the Titan Stadium was in Nissan Stadium, who's that's here in Nashville, it's been around since 1999, nearly 25 years old. The newest stadium uh, that's going to cost it, that's costing this city, uh, and you know, mixed with the ownership, 2.1 billion dollars scheduled to open by fall of 2026. The Buffalo Bills will also be playing in a new venue uh, that same year. So cities they've lost teams because of stadiums because they won't build one ask houston about the titans <laughs> you know bud adams needed a stadium he wanted one the astrodome uh, was falling apart we need something new well you know we don't want to do that well bye and that's exactly what happened there's a lot of new and nicer stadiums out there these days they are multi-purpose but they're they're set for football though remember this baseball being king when football did come along back in the day there were teams that were they were sharing baseball stadiums. They put football, they lined it for football, but they were baseball stadiums. They were playing both, multi-purpose, right? But now, you know, you got these, these spots. They're ready to host the Super Bowl. And, you know, it's that shot in the arm for a city, whether you have that football team there, as well as when they host the Super Bowl. And, you know, not just talking about concerts and all the other jobs, right? The Allegiant Stadium in, LA, uh, in Vegas. SoFi Stadium in L.A., uh, like I said, in Minnesota, U.S. Bank Stadium, 
Mercedes-Benz uh, in Atlanta. Wasn't able to go in, but I went down to Arlington to see AT&T. That is a monster. A absolute monster uh, where the Cowboys play. And you know, these venues will probably be along, uh, be around long, uh, well, let's just say longer than most. Okay, they're a lot newer. Um, I think the construction is just better these days. But even after 20 plus years, 25 years, you know, somebody's always looking around, you know, over the shoulder of the stadium that they've called home is like looking at the next one. You know what? I think we could use some new bathrooms. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just throwing something out there. But they're not going to be around forever. They get old. They get they fall apart. And when you think about the stadiums that people's uh, teams started in, fans started in. Okay, some people sat in some of those older seats back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s as children, and they remember that stuff, and they're gone. Okay, along with it, it's those memories taken from those seats, those fan experiences over the years. Your first over uh, game, people that you met, time with family or friends, championship game. You know, where was history made? Hosting Super Bowls. You know, some had those dual purposes. Other sports, of course, like I said, yet, baseball and the world series but they also hosted nfl championships and in some cases the first ever nfl game you know two uh there's only two nfl teams that are actually playing in their original stadiums we'll get to one of those today but you know even the very first stadium uh that would that hosted an nfl game well it was in dayton ohio so pro football's roots are in pennsylvania and ohio matter of fact they were called athletic clubs okay i've talked about uh those clubs from time to time before it was actual professional football and some of those guys they got they did get paid so they were pros they were playing for pennies pretty much they weren't playing for a whole lot of money and pennsylvania is where everything started in ohio and when the apfa was formed george hallis and all these guys got together and said hey look and it was really Hallis's idea mainly. And it's crazy. I read where Ralph Hay, who was the owner for the Canton Bulldogs, had had a similar discussion with some other people. So with some other owners, let's just say that. So they put their heads together. And of course, in September of 1920, September 17th, is when they met in Ralph Hay's Canton Auto dealership in Canton, Ohio, on the showroom floor because so many of those guys showed up. Uh, to form what would be called the American Professional Football Association, eventually turned into the NFL, the National Football League. September 26th was when the first game was played, actually. Rock Island, uh, the Rock Island Independents, they beat the St. Paul Ideals. St. Paul was not, uh, uh, this was a non-league game. They were not in the league. They beat the trash out of them, 48 to nothing, Rock Island did. But the actual first NFL APFA game was officially played on October 3rd, 1920. This was at Triangle Park. The Dayton Triangles met the Columbus Pi, uh, Panhandles. And the Triangles won the game 14 to nothing. Uh, you know, you had the two coaches, Coach Nelson Talbot uh, for, for Dayton and Columbus, uh, Ted Nesser. They had these guys, you know, that were, uh, that had already formed this team some years before. Get to that in a second. Um, you know, as far as the history of how they got to there. But Dayton, you know, the players, they were paid $50 each. Admission was $1.75. But the crazy part is at, at Triangle Park, 
is where the game took place, still exists today. It is now called Triangle Park Pavilion. I've already made up in my mind I'm going to go there, right? I'm going. Um, but there was no fences. There was no fencing in order to say, hey, you know, did you pay? <laughs> you just kind of had to pass around a hat, according to NFL historians. They had to pass around a hat and say, hey, you know, can you uh, put a little something in here for the players? So, and that's exactly how they did. Um, the first touchdowns that were scored, Lou Partlow scored on a seven-yard run. And then you had Francis Bacon, who returned a punt 60 yards for another touchdown. And then you had the first two extra points by Hobie Kennedy. The Triangles were finished 5-2-2 that season. And the Triangles, they were actually formed way back in 1916. Uh, their roots were in St. Mary's Cadets, uh, that basketball team that is now the University of Dayton. They started a football team upon graduation in 1912 as the Jim Cadets, and they changed their name to the Triangles. And so th this whole franchise lasted uh, from 19, uh, all the way till 1929. After our 0-6 season, you know, they called it quits. They folded up. Triangle Park, like I said, is still there today. Uh, it's known as Triangle Park Pavilion, and it actually has been a movie that was made i got to find it so i can watch it i think it was actually shown back on november the 23rd and so that was uh that was interesting on, on thanksgiving i did not see that movie i had no idea where to find it i didn't see any um any commercials for it or anything but i'm gonna to have to go find that but the triangle park that was built in 1917 the capacity excuse me the capacity was around 5,000 people so you had about 5,000 people that watched that very first NFL game that was played. And it wasn't actually the only NFL game that was played that day. So then you have the Chicago Bears, right? Well, of course we know George Hallis, key and star in the league. And they started off as the Chicago Staley's. A.E. Staley, who was A.E. Staley Manufacturing, I think they did starch back in 1920. And it was a wreck team that they had they actually had their field on the campus staley field right they played in decatur illinois it's where george hallis dutch sternman the two guys that would end up being co-owners mostly hallis uh of the bears as well as players and hallis being the coach as well um, they started off as more of a wreck thing um it was a it was a company athletic field that had baseball and football, just like all of the others that people were playing at. As a matter of fact, it was located 2200 East El Dorado Street in Decatur, Illinois. And then from 1920 to 1921, they played four games there, as a matter of fact. The capacity was only 1,500 people. So it wasn't a whole lot of people that were playing, uh, well, not playing, but that were actually showing up in order to watch these games. It's almost like friends and family. I guess you can say think of it like this uh how many of y'all seen mr mom when the boss had had the uh obstacle obstacle course i guess that was like out back of his house or whatever it's almost like having that at your company right so the first game was on a sunday october 3rd 1920 it was played the same day as the dayton triangles game but it was later on in the day so uh the first game was a 20 to nothing win over the moline tractors okay and the last game that was played there was a 14 to nothing win against Rock Island. And that was on October 10th, 
1921. So you have to understand, remember that uh, uh, the Chicago Staley's, before they were Chicago Staley's, they were the uh, Decatur Staley's, right? They were the first NFL team with a sponsor. They became the Chicago Staley's because they ended up moving the team to Chicago. Why? A. Staley's mindset was more so of, okay, well, this was something that was, especially joining the NFL and me sponsoring this team. Well, you know, this brought some more, um, let's see, recognition. Okay, it was almost like a billboard running around on the field, you know, for him. And he was all for the team moving on to bigger and better things and him, you know, concentrating on his stars company and then giving $5,000 to Dutch Thurman and obviously, you know, George Howes and say, hey, look, you know, y'all go ahead, take this money and go ahead and do your thing. Staley Field was more of a wreck field. Like I said, 1,500 people. The tickets were only a dollar. And Staley employees got a 50, uh, only paid 50 cents. They got a 50% discount. And then as for A.E. Staley, like I said, it was more of a promotional deal. And he gives Hallis and Dutch Thurman that money. So it was seed money so they can move on and play uh, in a bigger city. Bigger venue, Wrigley Field. Wrigley Field was built in 1914. Y'all remember the Blues Brothers, right? Yeah, 1060 West Addison. That's the address for Wrigley Field. One of the oldest stadiums that's still around. Okay, I think I think it I'm not sure if it is the oldest, but I know that it is one of the one of the oldest. But Chicago home uh, the Chicago Cubs home since 1916. And it was originally called Wigman Park. Um you had the Federal League a federal baseball league that lasted only what three years three seasons because he was kind of competing with major league baseball didn't didn't last long went away it only took a couple years to complete two years to complete as a matter of fact and at a cost of two hundred fifty thousand dollars and william wrigley jr that is bought it the same year the apfa was started the chewing gum guy yeah renamed cubs park at the time in 1926 it was named Wrigley Field. So it was home for the Bears from 1921 all the way to 1970. And they hosted multiple championship games in there. If you have to go all the way back to the 1930s, 1933, 1937, 41, 43, and the final one was in 1963, the NFL champions uh, championship, the Bears uh, and the New York Giants. And matter of fact, they only lost one on Wrigley Field, and that was to Washington in 1937 uh it was known for that those brick walls and the ivy that was growing all over those walls they had to add padding they talked about bronco nagurski running into the wall if you look at pictures from you know where you had the football field situated within wrigley field it was wonky and it was like the wall was only a couple of feet from this field <laughs> it, it was very close so it, that's that's pretty dangerous right um, but there was multiple renovations. The capacity went from uh, 1914 to 14,000 to as many as 36,000 in 1971. And they ended up, because the NFL, uh, the capacity rules had escalated, you need to have more people in your stadiums and whatnot, right? Well, they ended up in 1924, moving into what was called Grant Park Municipal Stadium or renamed Soldier Field in 1925. It was the memorial to American soldiers who had died in wars. And so with that being said, you had uh, uh, George Hallis, and th this is according to 
his autobiography that when they were playing in the Cubs field, they were sharing it with the Chicago Cubs. The Cubs received 15% of profits from ticket sales and concessions. And unless the gate receipts exceeded $10,000 and the Cubs got 20%, but Hallis negotiated that the Bears kept all the money from selling game programs. So they had to make some money. They had to have a place to play. And they said that the main stipulation from the Cubs side, however, was that the Bears had to open the season every year on the road, though, since the baseball team needed the stadium for games through September. Very, very interesting. But then when it came to Soldier Field, like I said, you had multiple renovations for this stadium. Um, again, it is the NFL's oldest stadium that still stands, and they've done nothing but pretty much put a spaceship where the present stadium since 1924 still exists. And it's actually the NFL's smallest at 61,000, over 61,000 people. Uh, they kept the original Roman uh, columns and the statues of the new things is statues of Walter Payton and George Hallis being out front. But, you know, there you go. The Chicago Cardinals, who also were in the city, they started off in as many teams as an athletic club that played football. They would start off as the Morgan Athletic Club. Then they went to the Racine Normal. And then the Racine Cardinals. In 1922, they became officially the Chicago Cardinals. But they were playing their home games to start off. And it was the years it was active, Normal Park, at South Racine Avenue and West 61st Street in Chicago. Years active, according to ProFootballReference.com, they were there from 1920 to 1928, 31 total grant games. You know, grass surface like everybody else. And the Chicago Cardinals were actually there uh, from 1926 to 1928. And they moved around a lot. I thought that that was really interesting. Great video on the NFL Explained. And he talked about before they moved to where they are now, what they call the big toaster with the retractable roof and all that, and the, and the football field that can be moved outside for sunlight and brought back in for games. These guys went from Normal Park to Kaminsky Park, which since has been demolished back in 1991, where the Chicago White Sox played, right? They go from Normal Park to Kaminsky Park and then back to, and they play some games at Wrigley and they played uh, during the World War II at Forbes Field, which we'll talk about that because they had to buddy up with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, it, it, it was crazy. And, and what was cool is that they did win two championships back in the day, in 1925 and 1947. But they were bouncing around a lot before they finally found somewhere else to go. And I feel like the, the franchise actually got worse once they <laughs> went away from Chicago. I thought that that was really interesting, but it's not surprising. Not to me anyway. But the the, the most storied venue, the most historic venue that I really love um, talking about is actually the Polo Grounds. The Polo Grounds obviously started off as a polo. They hosted, had polo matches at a polo field that was actually in a, in a, um, in a spot where Central Park I think it was uh, on the west side of Central Park. And where they had started things off, um, there were more streets that were built around Central Park. And it's like, okay, well, y'all gotta go. And so that's when it moved. And there's like four versions of the polo grounds, okay? Uh, and then those other versions, the main one was on West 155th Street and 8th Avenue in New York, in the Manhattan area. Um, 246 games 
from 1920 to 1963. Uh, Grass, you had the Giants that played their home games there when they came into the league in 1925. And I thought that it was really interesting just looking at the history of it and how everything kind of came together for that whole, that, that you know, the Polo Grounds as a whole. I even remember watching a Bugs Bunny episode. How many of you remember Baseball Bugs, I think is what it was? When Bugs Bunny was playing against the Gas House with Gorillas, they were playing at the Polo Grounds. Go back and watch it. Yeah, Gas House, gorilla, Gorillas, Bugs Bunny uh, 95, Gas House, Gorillas 96. Yeah, that, that one, you know, he's pitching, he's, he's batting, he's playing first base, second base, short, all of that. And they're playing that game at the Polo Grounds. I thought that was pretty cool. And I believe that that cartoon in particular, that episode was made in 1946 or 1947. Um, but the Polo Grounds, it was, it was actually home, obviously, for the New York Giants, but mainly for baseball. It was built all the way back in 19, uh, excuse me, 1876 is when it was first built. But it hosted polo matches. Uh, but then when they had to move, it was it ended up being a venue which, you know, fire had hit it and all that kind of stuff. And then there was many different things. They kept adding to it. And it was old. It was still old, right? Shaped like a bathtub. Never seen anything like that before. It's supposed to be in a baseball field, not a diamond shape at all. It was shaped like a bathtub. So, you know, th this this was the Giants field, their home field. Uh <laughs> for years all right from 1925 all the way to 1955 and just the place where you had babe ruth and ty cobb the yankees played there for a couple years before moving into yankee stadium um willie mays where he made that over the shoulder catch that's where that happened at the polo grounds hosting the army navy games jack dempsey boxing right and again you had four versions the original was in central park and then you know the second one moved to, uh, in Manhattan in the 1890s. And by the 1920s, you had another version. And for 30 years, the Giants were playing there. Um, visited New York and went to the new Yankee Stadium, went to go play, go see, I uh, wish I was playing. I went to go see the Yankees play against the Boston Red Sox back this summer. And I was staying with my cousins and uh, getting off the subway, walking up, uh, the stairs and you come out from up under the subway you could i mean yankee stadium was like bam there it is and i knew that the polo grounds was supposed to be near nearby i look over to my left uh and you can see what is now the polo grounds towers a housing development you know pretty much like the hood now over by the harlem river where it was moved um and i mean that whole venue it was demolished in 1964 and of course the Giants they moved on to Yankee Stadium and also the Yale Bowl while they was waiting on Giants Stadium to be finished in the in the 70s they even shared some uh time with the other football teams and baseball teams of course you had Shea Stadium as well uh Giants Stadium they moved into there in 1976 before moving on to MetLife when Giants Stadium was snatched down in 2009 for them to go in there in 2010 which the Giants have the largest capacity in the nfl at 82,500, right um but looking and, and and seeing that i'm like that that's cool man and that's where the i even looked to see where ebbets field was ebbets field i believe is where the dodgers the brooklyn dodgers used to play 
and that wasn't too far from where I was actually staying in Bed-Stuy. Um, and, but the Polo Grounds, it hosted the sneakers game, uh, NFL championship games in 1934. That was the 34, you know, sneakers game where the Chicago Bears uh, and the New York Giants played there and the Bears were beating them and the Giants go take off their cleats and go get uh, guy, the, the equipment guy goes and gets tennis shoes from Manhattan College and brings them back and then they outscored the Bears in the second half and win the 34 championship. That was the first one. And then in 38 and 44 and 46, uh, the Boston Redskins, uh, <laughs> well, George Preston Marshall was really upset about the, uh, was it the attendance for his own fans up there at Fenway Park. Well, he was on his way out of Boston. That's when they was getting ready to move to D.C. And they moved their championship game in 1936 to be played at the Polo Grounds. So, I mean, I thought that was really, really interesting. And, of course, the Giants would move on to play in the original Yankee Stadium. Talked about that a couple weeks ago with the 58 championship game that was hosted there. Um, they won. I mean, they, they lost that. But still, you know, all of that time. And then Yankee Stadium, we know that it stood for what, some 86 years. It was built back in 1923. Um, you know, but it also had the AFL's uh, New York Yankees football team. Uh, in the AFL, the first version of the AFL and the second version of the AFL that didn't last hardly any time at all. Remember, Red Grange started that league. And then the, A the first one, the AAFC's New York Yankees in 1946, and they moved on to be uh, to uh, the NFL playing up under a Brooklyn football team name in 50 and 51. And, of course, that was demolished in 2008 and, you know, the beautiful uh, stadium that you have there now. But I thought that was really cool. The Polo Grounds is one of those many stadiums that I just love. Uh, I would love to have visited. And the only thing that's left of it really are the stairs that actually took you down there to the actual field. I thought that was pretty cool. Well, I mean, this is the first of a three-part series. We're not even halfway there yet. We'll get to another one of the oldest NFL stadiums, one of which... I had no idea, honestly had no idea that they didn't always play there. It had been some years before they even got there and became champions in the 1960s. References, that's it. Thanks to ESPN.com, ProFootballReference.com, also BaseballStadiums.com. The Dayton Daily News, this article written September 29, 2023, the Dayton Triangles, what to know about the first NFL game in Dayton. Also, StaleyMuseum.com, history of the Decatur Staley slash Chicago Bears. Ballparks of baseball, the polo grounds, and also my book, America's Game, the NFL at 100, co-written by Jerry Rice and Randy O. Williams. 75 seasons, the story of the NFL. Yeah, thanks to TNT on that one. And also, this one was really good if you ever have a chance to watch this NFL throwback. It's the NFL Explained on YouTube. The history of every NFL stadium. And finally, my eyes, ears, and brain. This has been the Behind the Mic Podcast presented by Belly Up Sports and Belly Up Media. Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. Check us out on bellyupsports.com and our home base of Megaphone. Also the favorites. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Tell all your friends and family about this show or I will find your house. I'm out.